Thank you, Jennifer. Good morning, sunshine. Hey, uh, quick shout out to our university students. This is a special time of year. Uh, SPU, Seattle U, started classes last week, and uh, Seattle Central, University of Washington, start next week. And we love everybody here, but we love to love college students at UPC. In fact, one of our values is growing with students, our five values, growing with students, uh, which means we grow with students as students, all of us. Uh, So uh, welcome to those of you who are students back to school. Since we are coming back to school, I thought I'd um, give you a little bit of advice. Online education is so hard, and almost nobody wants to do it. So let me read from Dave Barry, who wrote this before the pandemic. He says, college is basically a bunch of rooms where you sit for roughly 2,000 hours and try to memorize things. 2,000 hours are spread out over four years. You spend the rest of your time sleeping and trying to get dates. Basically, you learn two kinds of things in college. Number one, things you'll need to know later in life, two hours. And then number two, things you will not need to know later in life, 1,998 hours. These are the things you learn in classes whose names end in ology, osophy, istry, ix, and so on. The idea is you memorize these things, then write them down in little exam books, and then forget them. If you fail to forget them, you become a professor and have to stay in college for the rest of your life. I guess they could say the same thing about too much time in church and becoming a pastor. And I know just like it's hard to take classes at uh, home through a screen, it's also hard to worship Jesus through a screen, but I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And to try to make it a little bit easier for you, I'm I'm gonna give you my message in brief right up front, so you'll have it if other distractions should emerge. Uh, So in, in the fewest possible words, here's the theme for today. When you substitute something for the true God, you substitute something for true love. Would someone put that in the chat just so we all have it? When you substitute something for the true God, you substitute something for true love. We'll talk about that. If you give me about, it's gonna take me a little longer today, but maybe 20, 23 minutes, I'll, I'll fill that in. I wanna leave with a practice. I'm gonna give you that right now as well. Uh, let God speak for himself. That, that'll be the practice. Let God speak for himself. So anyways, you've got that. If you get nothing else, take it. Uh, if mom should call or the cat should pull in a, a rat or something like that, you'll be all set. But let's take a little bit more time and think that through. And I wanna start with the idea of spiritual substitution. Think about substitutions. This week I did some cooking. I'm not much of a cook, but I'm super proud of what I made. Um, Hot dogs. So I know it's not that hard, but have a look at this this picture. This is my creation, my gift to you. Oh, look, I'm sorry to do that. Hopefully you're having a lovely brunch right now, but look at those hot dogs. So my uh, non-vegetarian son looks at that and goes, mmm, but here's the thing. There is actually no beef, no pork, no turkey, no tofu. These are actually carrots, two carrots right there. Oh, I know, I know, so good. Uh, substitutions. I, I, I wanna define substitutions. But before I do that, let me ask you to think about what substitutions come to your mind. Have you had an experience of substitutions? Could be a good thing, bad thing, uh, upgrade, something uh, fraud. Put it in the chat. Put a word or two in the chat so we can see what you've got. Now, here's the definition. This is what the dictionary says. Uh, Substitution is a person or thing that takes the place or function of another. 
Okay, I'm sharing this with you because we're looking at the 10 words or 10 commandments as they're commonly called in the Bible. And uh, we're looking at the second one today. And it's a caution against spiritual substitutions. So what does that mean? Well, let's open up the Bible. You find the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. So take, type Exodus 20, colon, one through 17 into the search window. And uh, you, if you want our translation, the one we use, NRSV, put, put that in there and the whole 10 commandments will come up. We're gonna focus on verses four through six. Uh, maybe you're opening up just a paper Bible. Take a second to do that and then follow along with me as I read Exodus 20, verses four through six. Listen carefully, we're reading God's holy word. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in, any, uh, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under heaven, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's pause. Lord God, you uh, spoke to the Israelites millennia ago. Now speak to us. If we're honest, we have to admit that we do believe, but there's part of us also that doesn't believe. So we pray that you'd help us in our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Spiritual substitutions. A student once said to his pastor, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. Pastor thought for a moment and said, well, tell me, which God don't you believe in? It's interesting. The pastor knew that Sometimes the God we don't believe in isn't actually the true God. Which raises a question, if the God you believe in, uh, if the God you don't believe in isn't the true God, what then? Or if the God that you do believe in isn't the true God, then what then? You see, this is the importance of this topic, spiritual substitutions. Let me just take a second and look at the chat and see if you've come up with any substitutions. Okay, not everyone loves carrot dogs. Um, I was in the earlier service, people were talking about yogurt for uh, um, sour cream or decaf coffee. Okay, there's Zawadi with oat milk versus cow's milk. I would choose oat milk. Thanks for that, Zawadi. So, I mean, sometimes they're they're good substitutions. Sometimes you go, oh my gosh, uh, yuck, right? Now, when we talk about the deepest realities of life, it becomes more than just a joke. I have a friend who was ordering online during the pandemic and he saw this great price on these two leather chairs and he thought just the thing, we're inside a lot. So he ordered them and then when they arrived, turns out they were chairs for toddlers. So he gave me permission to share this. This is his Facebook post. This guy's like 6'5", and here he is in these little teeny leather chairs. Uh, Bad substitution, it happens, we learn our lesson. Okay, but spiritual substitution is when we put something else in the place of God. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. Let's look again at our text. Verses four and five say, you shall not make for yourself an idol. 
And then verse five, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I, don't, I can't see you, unfortunately, right now, and I, I don't know what you're doing. But one thing I have a sense that you're not doing is you're probably not sitting at a table with a chisel and a block of wood and a slightly anxious goat by your side, right? We don't, we don't make idols in that way. And yet the Bible tells us that all of us do make idols, all of us. It's just part of our alienation from God. For example, St. Paul in his magisterial uh, recount of human history says this in Romans chapter one. He says, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. They exchanged, see that there's the substitution. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. It's idolatry. Now, this is not about art. Uh, Very shortly in the Old Testament, God's gonna give Moses instructions for lots of art that goes into the temple. This is about your heart. This is about what you and I put in our hearts in the place that is only to be the place of God, whether that's money or work or health or family or if you're a child, maybe it's that favorite toy that nobody else gets to play with. It's just yours. Um, This is about substituting something else for the living God. This can even be, and I want you to catch this, put the eggs down for just a second, our ideas about God, our notions of God. They can become idols. C.S. Lewis writes a painful section in a book called A Grief Observed. It's a heart-wrenching book about the story of loss he experienced when his wife dies of cancer, Joy Davidman. He says, he's this great um, Cambridge professor, an apologist of Christian faith, and yet he, we find him in this book wrestling very authentically with his unbelief because is this really the God we worship? And here's what he says. Um, This is a grief observed. It makes little difference whether they, meaning idols, are pictures and statues outside of the mind or imaginative constructions within it. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. In fact, he shatters it himself. God is the great iconoclast. Think about that. God is the great iconoclast. It means image breaker, right? Because we hold these mental notions about God in the place where God himself, the living God, the actual God ought to live in our hearts. Why would we do this? Why? Well, it was interesting. I learned a little bit this week. Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart writes about the attractions of idolatry for ancient peoples. And I just wanna list these for you. It might be helpful for you to see why Israelites were attracted to idolatry. So the first one is this, that it's guaranteed. They believed that the little image actually contained something of the spirit of the God. And so when you had the image, it gave you a sense of control. This is guaranteed. Secondly, uh, selfish, idolatry was selfish. You feed the God, the God feeds you. It's very transactional. You get what you want and you become the center. It's easy. Pagan gods never made ethical demands of their worshipers. It's convenient. You don't have to go to Jerusalem like God had commanded. You just, you'll find a shrine or a high place at a a location convenient to you. Uh, It's normal. Everybody's doing it around you. 
In fact, if the Israelite were to ask a Canaanite, how do we farm here? The Canaanite's answer would include uh, idol worship, normal. Uh, Six, it's logical. Pagan gods tended to specialize in certain things. And uh, it was strange to have a generalist God like I am. So it'd it'd be logical to worship I am plus the God of the specialty, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Logical. Seven, pleasing to the senses. The images were attractive and the worship was emotionally compelling and moving uh, in idol worship. Eight, it's indulgent. Um, Meat was kind of a luxury. It was rare actually that you would eat meat in the ancient world. But when you offered a sacrifice to an idol, you got to eat part, a portion of the meal. And then finally, it's erotic. Uh, Temple prostitution was a common way to incite the fertility of gods. So, you know, it turns out human nature is pretty much the same today. Why do we worship an image of God rather than the real God? It's because we want a God who is easy. We want a God who is convenient. We want a God who uh, is logical, makes sense to us, who doesn't make demands of us, who leaves us in control of our lives, love to be in control. And we don't want a God who'll make us look foolish. We want a God that's the same God that everybody else is worshiping around us. Now, Um, it turns out that in America, we have a God pretty much like this. I've mentioned to you before a very impressive and important bit of research that's a a longitudinal study that's being done over the last decade called the the National National Survey of of Youth and Religion. And... um, it's, a, it's a, a survey across denominations of spiritual beliefs, originally of the youth, but now they've grown up. And what they're finding is that the beliefs they're discovering are beliefs that we all hold. And recently they published a, the latest iteration in this finding, and they describe our beliefs in America as DIY spirituality. Uh, do-it-yourself spirituality. And here's some of the features of our beliefs that they found. And there are seven of them. Let me again just list these and see if it sounds, like, sounds familiar to you. The first is that karma is real, meaning everything happens for a reason. The second is everybody goes to heaven. After all, nobody deserves anything else, we think. Number three, just do good. That's basically the important thing, which basically means don't be a jerk. This is the great imperative today. Number four, it's all good which is about being as non-judgmental as possible. Number five, it says religion is easy. Uh, It imposes no significant demands on us, ethical or otherwise. And number six, morals are self-evident, meaning we just kind of know what's right and wrong, don't we? We, we? We feel, we just know or feel what's right or wrong. And then finally, no regrets. In fact, regrets are seen as a negative thing because you are your experience and you don't want to regret who you are. So I don't know if these are, you'd call these seven commandments of the modern world, but this is, this is us. Just be clear, this research is not of secular America. This is of religious America. This, this is what we believe in all kinds of denominations across our country. So do you see yourself in that picture? The problem with it is that that's not the living God. That's not how he has made himself known. That's not what we learn as we read the scripture and grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. 
So let me take us back to the text because God tells Israel what's at stake here, why this matters to them. He answers the great why question and what we lose when we substitute something for the true God. And the answer is, in a phrase, love. Authentic love. See, remember the theme for today. When you substitute something for the true God, you substitute something for true love because love comes from God. Look at our text in verses five and six. Just continue on. The Lord says, and here's the the answer to the why. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love. You could underline that phrase, steadfast love. That's one word in Hebrew, that's chesed. Showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Remember that I said these 10 words are all about 10 gifts that God wants to give us. It's not that God is trying to tell us what to do. It's that God is trying to give us something. And so I wanna ask each week with you as we look at each of these gifts, uh, words or commandments, what is the gift here? And if we ask that now, God has actually been the one who answers the question for Israel. The, the gift I'm trying to give you, he says, is love, chesed, steadfast love, authentic love, the real deal. And he says, for a thousand generations, you know Moses lived less than 150 generations ago. A thousand generations would be to this day more than all of recorded history. So this is a Hebrew way of of saying, uh, I will give you an everlasting love, an immortal love. Now let me just back up for a second because there are two aspects of this passage that are troubling to us, I know. And I wanna just take a moment and comment on them. There's some common misunderstandings. Uh, The first is about the, the four generations. This is not about generational cursing or or punishing parents for the stuff that kids do wrong or vice versa. That's a a practice that's explicitly forbidden in uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, or Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Now, the four generations, that's the typical size of an Israelite family. They typically live together as four generations. A healthy Israelite would generally live to see their great-grandchildren be born. This is a lifespan. The meaning of this is essentially that if you don't know who God really is, you're likely to see the consequences of that play out over your whole lifetime and affect your whole family. So that's the four generations. The other thing that's troubling to us is this bit about jealousy. We hear that word and we don't want to associate it with God. It seems to us like a bad thing, but for them, it was a good thing. And here's how they would have experienced it. Remember, they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai following the Exodus. They've been pulled out of slavery in Egypt. And God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. And when they hear that, this is a jealous God, they're going to remember what God has done. They were enslaved, oppressed, horrible lives, murderous uh, oppressors. And God did a wonderful thing. He heard their cries and he sent Moses. And Moses went to the Pharaoh with this terrifying mandate, let my people go. The Lord said, these are my firstborn. This is my firstborn child. You let my people go. And see, they would hear that is jealousy. That's what, what it means when the Lord says, I'm jealous. It means 
I will not let anything come between you and my love. This is the emotional response that God experiences to that hesed or steadfast love when it's threatened. God has an absolute intolerance for anything that keeps his love from being expressed or that keeps you from experiencing the fullness of love. That's jealousy. This is a God who's set his heart on you. This is a God who's made himself vulnerable. You see the risk and the beauty of this? What does it mean to you that God is jealous for you? They, they would hear it as a, a, a good thing. But what it means is that God wants to be in an authentic relationship with you. <laughs> the invisible being who holds time and space together, the one who made your life and knows your destiny, wants to be known by you, wants to be in a relationship with you, uh, wants to experience you in the day-to-day circumstances of your life. This is what that means. And that is a wonderful wonderful thing. God has for you unstoppable love. One other place that we see this word jealousy coming up in the scriptures is in the Song of Solomon, chapter eight, verse six. Song of Solomon says, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy, that's our word, unyielding as the grave. These two lovers, they're talking about a love that transcends the grave. Even if we die, the love will continue. This is an interesting foreshadow of our savior Jesus, right? Who rose from the dead, points to a God who's got a love that's bigger even than death. And Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend and you are my friends. Do you hear that? I love you with a love that is unstoppable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not height, nor depth, not sin, not death, not the golden calves that you and I constantly manufacture in our hearts. Calvin says our hearts are idle factories and yet God can reach through, this jealous God can reach through and says, I will not quit in your life until you know me fully as you are fully known, until you love me completely as you are completely loved. You see that? This is a God who's saying no substitutions. This is God who is an iconoclast, who will, who will not be done with us until God has broken the idols in our hearts. When you substitute something for the true God, you may not know it, but you substitute something for true love. Finally, there's a practice. I wanna leave you with this practice today. And it's this, I mentioned it earlier. If someone could put it in the chat, that would help us. Let God speak for himself. Let God speak for himself. I call this practice prophetic listening because out of the second word that God gave Israel grew a whole tradition called the prophetic tradition. I love this about the Israelites. They allowed God to have a voice in their lives to say the hard things. It was the prophet, the word of the Lord would break in and say, when they were straying, you're lost. When they were doing something wrong, no. Tough love, right? No. When they were complacent, wake up. This is a prophetic voice and it made Israel what they became as God's people. And we need to hear that voice in our lives as well. We need to allow God to speak into our lives in a way that makes us uncomfortable from time to time, that says the hard things to us, that says no to us that constantly reveals God in his truth 
to us, in his holiness and goodness and beauty to us in a way that shatters and renders unattractive all of our false images. We need a community that says no substitutions. So uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Has anybody ever made an assumption about you just on the basis of how you, what you look like? Has anybody ever just kind of jumped to a conclusion, maybe the color of your skin or, or, or anything? If so, would you put that in the chat, put a, put a word or two that reflects what they thought you were uh, that was wrong or maybe how it made you feel when someone did that to you? And while you're doing that, let me tell you about what happened to me this summer. Jesus spoke to me through a verse. It was actually a question. It's in Luke 6, verse 46. Jesus asks a question and he says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I read that and I went, ouch. Now in Matthew, there's another version of this, chapter seven, and Jesus goes further. He's talking to a specific group of people and he says, go away from me, I never knew you. What he's saying is, you have an image of me that you think is me that I don't even recognize as myself. This is Jesus saying to some people, I'm me, I'm here with you. I I want you to have me, all of me, I'm right here. But you, you, you refer to a Jesus in quotations that I don't identify with me. You've got your own Jesus. You projected your stuff on this Jesus and he's standing right there as though he's the real Jesus, but I'm the real Jesus. Well, you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you. You can hear the jealousy in in Jesus's heart at that point. And I'm thinking this summer, why do we never hear about this Jesus? I mean, this is a Jesus who doesn't say, you're good, it's all good. That's not what he's saying, is it? This is not a sentimental Jesus. This is not a domesticated Jesus. This is a Jesus in whom the glory and holiness of the living God draws near to us, exposes our sin, calls us to repentance. We ought to do before this Jesus what Isaiah does when God's glory appears to him and just fall on the ground in awe and reverence and worship. This is a Jesus who loves us just the way we are, but he loves us so much he can't keep us that way. So let me look and just see at the chat whether you've had an experience of being missed by someone or assumptions that people make about us. Feeling not, you know, being fully known, somebody says. Feeling belittled or unimportant. Not worth being known, somebody else says. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We're learning as a community. We're trying to learn as a community how to really know one another authentically. How, for example, not to make assumptions about someone on the basis of the way they look, their skin color or the culture that they come from. We don't want that because we know a living relationship requires two people to actually reveal themselves, be vulnerable with one another. And if we're working, and it's hard with one another, but if it's hard with one another, imagine how it is with the infinite God. It's really hard. So we don't wanna make assumptions about this God or project our fears or desires on this God. We've gotta let this God speak for himself. And that's the prophetic practice, to let God speak for himself. So what does that look like? Well, two things, just very quickly. One, it means we read this book. This is the revelation of God, this book. It's the word of God. And so we've gotta read it. Not just our favorite parts, like read the whole thing. Um, 
not just the parts we like, I would say even especially the parts we don't like, the parts that make us uncomfortable. We have to really wrestle with them and try to understand them, allow them to challenge us. James says it's like a mirror to really see yourself accurately. You've got to see the, all, the whole scripture. And the other thing is community. It got to be a part of the prophetic community because we don't see ourselves well, but we can help each other do that. This is why we want to invite you into one of our formational communities that reaches out to neighbors. What makes it formational and different from our neighbors and attractive to our neighbors is that we're allowing God to speak for himself and, and to tell us who he really is and what it's like to live with him. Uh, he's saying essentially no substitutions and we help each other with that. So that's the practice this week that I would encourage you. Let me close with a story and then an invitation. <clears throat> you may have heard the story about a, a mother and a daughter who lived in a small village outside of Brazil. One day the daughter grew, grew up and said, Mom, I want to go to the big city. It's the lights and the activity attracted her. That broke her mother's heart because she knew the big city and she knew what happened to young girls who didn't have much resources in that city and she was afraid for her. So she said no. But one morning, Maria, the mother, found Christina, her daughter's bed empty. She'd gone. And so Maria packs up her gear and went to Rio de Janeiro in pursuit of her daughter, feared the worst, she knows what happens to girls when their money runs out in Rio. And so she scours the city looking everywhere she can, and first in hotels and then in parks and bars and nightclubs, the red light district, can't find her. She starts to make photos of herself. She goes to a photo booth and makes as many photos as she can possibly afford to make. And she would write on the back of the photo a little handwritten note. Then she'd take the photos and put them in lobbies or in... The, the restaurant um, bathrooms, tuck it under the mirror. One day, Christina was coming down the stairwell of a brothel, full of shame, hurting and angry. She went into the lobby and her eye caught one of these photos. It was an image of her mother. With tears in her eyes, she pulled this picture off the bulletin board and turned it over. And she read the message that her mother had written there. No matter what has happened, no matter who you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home. And in that moment, Christina listened. She heard the voice of her mother, and immediately she went home. Now, the picture said it all. It was the image of her mother that broke the trauma of her life. And I want to tell you, that this is what God has done for us in the trauma of our world. He has put an image of himself right at the center. Jesus Christ, his one and only son, fully God and fully human. He says, this is me. If you've seen him, you've seen me. And he invites us likewise to come home. I, I, I don't know why you're on this Zoom call with me today, but I believe God has a reason. You're here for a purpose. And I pray that this is God's word to you today. Doesn't matter what you've done, what you've become, makes no difference. Come home. That's the message of Jesus Christ. And if today you've heard any other message, if you've heard any other voice than the voice of mine, I wanna encourage you to consider that maybe it is your Lord calling out to you 
The Bible tells us who Jesus is. He's the visible image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He's the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, Hebrews 1.3. And he's come to call us home. So if you hear him, if you sense something, some small measure of belief welling up in your soul, would you say yes and come home? Let's pray. God, I thank you for that story that our Savior Jesus told of the father who ran to the edge of his field for a son who'd been lost in the distant country. You did that for me. I'm here today. There's joy in my life and there's a prospect of, there's the certainty of eternal life because you did that for me. And I know you did that to my, for my friend as well. And I just pray for them right now that they will feel your arms of love closing fast around them, embracing them, drawing them into the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray in this way. Give us the assurance of faith. Help us in our unbelief. We pray this in your name and for your sake.